electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Courtney Reagan, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer and Faber have the morning off. Final week of September and Q3. Futures red as we come off the worst week for the S&P Nasdaq since March. Busy few days ahead with global inflation data. Fed speaks, some earnings from Nike and Micron. Ten-year 4.5 is a new cycle high. Our roadmap begins with the last trading week of the quarter. S&P poised to drop further from this three-month low at the open. Plus, Strike Watch, Hollywood reaching a deal with riders while the auto walkout enters its second week. Ford says significant gaps still remain. And Amazon's AI move investing some $4 billion in a chat GPT rival. Let's begin, though, with a new market week for after four days of losses, Mike, and we lost the 100-day moving average on the S&P. Yeah, new market week, very similar dynamics so far. You have the 10-year yield poke above 4.5%. Uh, we closed pretty close to the lows uh, on uh, on Friday, and uh, now I think it's it's become uh, the debate point is yes we knew and expected that we were going to have some seasonal weakness. We we came into August uh, overbought and overloved, and everybody embracing the soft landing uh, scenario. Now we've had a little bit of corrective mindset to that. Um, how deep we have to go is a good question in terms of trying to account for where rates are and why they're there. Um, so last week I wasn't necessarily that alarmed at the specific changes the Fed made, where they sort of took away two notional rate cuts from next year and, you know, essentially higher for longer, they've been saying for a very long time. But the market reaction, the 10-year yield reaction caused people to say, wait a second, yields aren't going up because the economy is accelerating right now. The Fed's changing its own outlook because the economy has been strong, but we already knew that. So there's this kind of lag in, in the market perception of where we are, where the Fed says we have to go. And also, if, it, if Treasury supplies a, a part of the story on the 4.5%, uh, it causes everybody to say, can the consumer, can the economy handle rates and oil at this level? And rates obviously are moving higher, but it doesn't seem as much as equities really sold off. Were you yeah. surprised by that reaction to your point about, look, they didn't tell us anything we didn't know, except for maybe make it a little bit more transparent. It's true. The absolute change in yield last week was not that dramatic. I think it was 11 basis points on the 10-year, a little bit less than that on the two-year. But because we broke out to 16, 17-year highs, now you have everybody looking at the Treasury charts and saying, well, the 10-year, it just 5 and 5.1 is right there. That's where the technical target brings you to. And again, I think it's why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if we, if, if we were, hey, earnings estimates are racing higher, uh, we, we all are, are just accounting for a faster growth world, it's, uh, it's obviously not necessarily the case. So I'm not so much in that camp that says, well, we just plugged the 4.5% uh, 10-year into uh, the equity valuation model, and that's why we're down. That's part of why we're down. Mostly, though, we're down it because we're worried that the Fed is willing to see the economy weaken more than the stock market can handle. 
Uh, right. Yeah, not being accompanied with a better growth picture is yeah. why this particular round has been harder for equities uh, to absorb. Uh, there, Mike mentioned supply. We're going to get new twos, fives, sevens this week, maybe another $20 billion in IG supply as well. Yes. Um, and so we keep testing this market. Now, the supply is not a long-term linear relationship that says every time the government's selling more treasuries, yields surge. But there's enough of a, of a worry that that's the case. Uh, and it's also one of those things, when you get a correction in the markets and you say, who did it? Who is the culprit here? It's, I always say it's like murder on the Orient Express. Everyone did it. <laughs> I mean, there's always a role for all these different factors to play. Oil, government shutdown, uh, you know, everything that we're kind of worried about. But yeah, the supply story is interesting. Although the credit, the corporate credit side has held up, as we discussed, pretty well. Um, and so, yeah, we're willing to buy bonds at these yield levels, corporates uh, specifically. Uh, but, yeah, there you see uh, two-year note 512 keeps making new highs. They're over, you know, bonds are oversold almost as much as stocks are getting oversold, huh. if not more. And so you would expect a little bit of a reflex uh, reversal at some point, which maybe would take the pressure off stocks. As we move here into the final week of the month and the quarter, you have a column about seasonality and how it's really playing out to the script, which is good because, you know, Hollywood writers are still on strike. Right. Maybe, they're, yeah. maybe they're done. So maybe we don't need them to help write the script because history's done it for us. So what do you expect here in this final week? I th it's it's gotten to the point where it's it's kept so close to the seasonal patterns that you wonder, I wonder if investors are sort of leaning on that as the explanation a little more than we otherwise would. And therefore, people aren't quite as concerned about the fact that the market's down 6%. You know, the average stock is down a whole lot more than that. Uh, and so maybe it just sort of forestalls that moment where we get to uh, a real sharp repricing, uh, a real kind of, you know, panicky type move, something that would say, Long-term buyers are willing to come in here just because people are so negative and willing to take the other side because we've discounted some of the bad news. So we'll see. I, you know, that maybe, but the other part of it is maybe that's why seasonality works because the longer it goes on, everyone says, whoa, well, maybe it's not just seasonality. Maybe there's something else going on here <laughs> and we get scared. And what do you know? October comes along and we have a bottom. So we'll, you know, we'll see how it, all, um, how it all does play out. Definitely you can lean on the corporate earnings they're still kind of trudging in the right direction, although, again, that's also very top-heavy. It's the big growth stocks that are dragging up the, yeah. uh, the S&P earnings. We've talked about how conference season kind of came and went without yeah. major tape bombs, although there was a, a good short, a, a good uh, note from Christine Short last night about mm -hmm. dividend growth, uh, more companies uh, trimming, fewer raising, and that yeah. gap is the narrowest since COVID really launched in Q2 of 20. You also saw some commentary that um, the pace of corporate buybacks has actually slowed. It's still at a healthy level, but, you know, the companies have discretion as to when and whether they ex execute the buyback. And there was a little bit light, and now they're mostly in the blackout window because it's getting toward earnings season. So, um, again, I think those are all things that people deploy as excuses for why the stock, the market is not doing or not doing what they think it might uh, it might do. But it, it all goes into the mix for sure. Our next guest says that a soft landing may be the worst case scenario uh, because at least a temporary uh, selling reprieve, though, may be nearby. Can't accord to Genuity's chief market strategist Tony Dwyer joins us this morning. Tony, it's great to have you. You have been cautious, I would argue, for a, a, a good portion of the year. Uh, is there a sense that the, this market is sort of moving your way? 
Well, it's kind of the good portion of the last year and a half. I, hey, Carl, as you know, I, I'm kind of known as the permable, and it's been the opposite for the last year and a half. And it's one really simple reason, and, and it's higher rates. So, you know, earlier Mike talked about the corporate credit market holding in great. And, and people like me love to come on and talk about the, the study of how spreads and corporate spreads are doing well, and it's not indicative of any kind of real slowdown. But somebody better tell a CFO who's now raising money uh, in high yield at eight and three quarters, that it's it's okay because the spreads are narrow when it's up from three and three quarters at the, at the end of twenty one. Right. So, so I guess the point, Tony, is that financial conditions are tightening, even if spreads are okay. They're tame, and if you're a corporate credit buyer, you can hedge it out in treasuries, and you're still happy. Yeah, Mike's. You know, we've done this a long time. <laughs> Every once in a while, we got to throw a little bit of common sense in here. I run a household, right? It's going to cost me, I could, uh, my mortgage expense would be so much higher if I had to take out a mortgage now. There's one thing, whether it's a soft landing, a no landing, a hard landing, whatever kind of landing you want, there's always a catalyst that takes you out the other side of it. And it's an improved outlook for money. That improved outlook for money always comes from lower treasury rates lower mortgage rates and lower corporate rates. And right now, as you know, we're making a cycle high for all of them. But to your point earlier, Mike, it's a really important point. Yeah, the S&P is down 6%. The equal weighted S&P is flat for the year. And the average stock in the NYSE is down 29.3%. So the idea that people like me are going to come on here and say, now run for the hills because the market's starting to weaken, it's already been extraordinarily weak. So what I think you want to do is look for when bad news becomes bad news and be ready to attack that kind of weakness. And we're getting closer to that point. I mean, it does seem, Tony, like the trend is to be more negative. You've got strikes, you've got a potential shutdown, you've got a student loan resumption, the payments resuming. I mean, it just seems like there's not a lot of options to be real positive, even if each one of those doesn't have a super significant impact overall put together. It doesn't feel great for sentiment. That's really, I think, Courtney, that's exactly right. It doesn't feel great. So if you if you talk to somebody that has student debt, they haven't had to start paying it yet. But if you ask them if they've adjusted their budget on the fear of paying it, they have. And their credit card rates are all those things are there. But that's why the average stock's down 29% from its 52-week high. More than half, 50, almost 55%, according to my friends at Ned Davis, of NYSE stocks are down more than 20%. So some of that is going to be discounted. There's really three phrases of this game as, as you talk about economic weakness. There's when good news is bad news because it means a tighter Fed. We got that in 2022. Then you get good news or bad news is good news because it means the Fed's going to stop. We were in that in into the summer uh, of this year where the market had rallied over 20% off the low. But then you ultimately have to get, unless there's a dramatic, significant and sustainable improvement in those three areas of credit, you ultimately got to get into that bad news is bad news. And that's when you want to look to take advantage of the opportunity. So, Gordy, going back to what Carl suggested that I've been defensive for a while, yeah, we, we call it light and tight. Um, you know, we want extra cash, not extraordinarily defensive, because we want to be in a position to take advantage of a whoosh or some kind of economically fear-based swoon that that's likely to come when you're having, you know, historically high margins, expectations for earnings, I think, for next year are out of whack too high. And the earnings yield uh, in the S&P 500 is roughly equivalent to a risk free rate. That's when you want to get prepared to attack the market, not to actually just jump right in. 
And then, Tony, I'm going to make a counterpoint of the question that I just asked. If we could just play a soundbite from Neil Kashkari uh, when he spoke on Friday about how consumers really have remained resilient. Take a listen. I would have thought with 500 basis points or 525 basis points of interest rate increases, we would have slammed the brakes on consumer spending. And it has not slammed the brakes on consumer spending. It continues to exceed expectations. So then how do you account for that, right? All of these sort of negative pressures, negative sentiment, yet consumers are still out there spending, even if consumer discretionary stocks had a really bad week last week. Uh, they've had a really bad time outside of the biggest ones. But I, I would suggest that the Fed is going by bad data. Get, get this one. So we did a study. We got the idea from Ned Davis. Um, but we went back and we looked on the BLS website. You can find something called the initiation survey rate. That's when the Fed sends out data to um, payroll, you know, for the payroll number we get every every month. The, the initial response rate pre-pandemic was somewhere north of 65%. So they send out the survey. The business responds. 65% of the businesses respond. After the pandemic took place, that's dropped into the low 30s. It's been as low as 29%. So the Fed is going by very inaccurate data on their initial take. And I think that happens in the household survey that comes from the Census Bureau. So my whole point of this is we're kind of in a microwave market and a slow cooker economy. It takes a while. But people like me come on Every day you have 50 guests talking about how the cons- what the consumer is doing. When we look back, we're going to say, oh, yeah, rates went up to over 5%. Consumer credit was weakening and corporate rates and mortgage rates stayed high. Yeah, that's why things got hit. So I think, again, Courtney, the really most important point is it's already hit so many stocks. The Russell 2000 has been smoked. Now's not the time to start getting nervous. I think now is the time as bad news becomes bad news and gets priced in that you want to look to be more aggressive in those areas that are early cycle stocks. It's just a little bit too early yet. All right, good stuff, Tony. I uh, appreciate that very much, and, and we'll see if we get a shutdown. <laughs> Fed will have no data to go on, which some argue <laughs> right. uh, will keep exactly. them on the sidelines. We'll see. Uh, Tony Dwyer, thanks. Thank you. We're now on to the UAW strike against Detroit's big three as negotiations continue. President Biden is planning to visit picket lines in Michigan tomorrow. Phil Abo joins us now with the latest. Good morning, Phil. Good morning, Courtney. And we're starting to see some progress in terms of talks between the UAW and at least one of the automakers, the automaker being Ford. We've heard for some time that those talks are probably further along than GM and Stellantis. And I can tell you from talking with those familiar with the negotiations over the weekend that there were very active talks between the UAW and Ford on Saturday and Sunday. Ford issuing a statement last night saying we are making progress, but there's still some big gaps that they need to clear before they're close to a a tentative agreement. President Biden, as you mentioned, he he will be visiting picketers. That's going to be happening tomorrow morning. As you take a look at shares of Ford, keep in mind that the company got some good news on Friday evening when Unifor, the counterpart to the UAW up north of the border in Canada, its rank and file approved a contract with Ford. So that's locked in. Now the question is whether or not Ford can get a deal locked in with the UAW. And again, they're making progress. I wouldn't expect something immediate, but they're moving in the right direction there. As for GM and Stellantis, they're a little bit further to go in terms of a, uh, a contract or a tentative agreement with the uh, UAW. And that's one reason why the UAW said, you know what, we're going to go out at the parts and distribution centers. Uh, they hit uh, 30, uh, 38 of them. Yes, 38 
of those between GM and Stellantis on Friday. And those workers remain on strike in addition to the uh, final assembly plans for GM and Stellantis uh, in Toledo and just outside of St. Louis. So, guys, it's going to be an interesting week. We will get the president in Detroit tomorrow. Details are still pending in terms of where he goes and the, the union workers that he talks with. Uh, but he is clearly sending a signal here that he believes that the workers should get more. And whether or not that pushes the automakers and the UAW to an agreement remains to be seen. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask, Phil, and sort of your history of covering the automakers and strikes. When you have a move like this, a president coming sort of to join the picket lines, is that more just political posturing or does it really have an impact? I'm not sure how much impact it has at this point. I, I think the automakers want to get a deal done with the UAW. It's just a question of there are certain pinch points, if you will, in the negotiations. Wage tiers is a huge one. The UAW wants those eliminated where you're hired at this level and then it takes you a number of years to make it to the top pay level. According to the UAW, that's ridiculous. And when you talk with the rank and file, they will tell you the same thing. Well, the question becomes for the automakers, okay, if you do that, that makes it much costlier over a longer period of time, uh, over a four-year contract. And so they're going to have to – those are the things that are stopping this, not necessarily the president coming to town saying, hey, let's get a deal worked out. Phil, we'll see what happens uh, uh, tomorrow, of course, and, and all week long. Our Phil LeBeau covering uh, the strike entering its second week. Uh, when we come back, Amazon ramping up its AI strategy with a $4 billion investment. Take a look at the pre-market here. We got some news this morning on City. Uh, be a big week for Meta. Some news on Lulu, HP, and some calls as well on Microsoft, Nike, AT&T, and more. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselcumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Amazon making a bet on generative AI, the company confirming it plans to invest up to $4 billion in Anthropic. It's a rival to OpenAI. Deirdre Bosa joins us with what also might be a big week for uh, Amazon on the FTC front, Dee. Yeah, that's right, Carl. And this one in particular follows the trend of big tech trying to maintain its leadership in the AI race by partnering with some of the most promising startups. Anthropic, it is known as the OpenAI rival. It was co-founded by veterans of that company. And it's also seen as one of the hottest startups in the generative AI space. Now, this follows Microsoft's massive partnership with OpenAI. Anthropic earlier this year also took investment from Google for a reported 10% stake. Here, Amazon gets a minority stake for up to $4 billion. We don't know how much of a stake. But this is unlike the exclusive Microsoft OpenAI deal. Anthropic is essentially embracing several cloud companies. Alphabet, now Amazon, already had a partnership with Amazon, so it'll run models on both infrastructure systems. It has also seen investment from Salesforce. 
unclear whether this deal will give Amazon the AI halo effect from Wall Street that Wall Street has bestowed on Microsoft and Google, which have really been seen as the mega cap leaders in the AI race so far. Amazon shares there up less than half a percent on the news this morning. Its strategy has been less consumer focused. So no chat bot that we could use like a chat GPT or BARD. It's been more developer focused with AI tools through its bedrock service. Last thing, guys, this is a win for Amazon's AWS and its ambitions for its custom AI chips, which Amazon is presenting as an alternative to NVIDIA's dominance in the market. As part of the deal, Anthropic will use AWS as its primary cloud provider, and it'll use Amazon's in-house AI chips to build and deploy its AI software. AWS customers, though, still want those NVIDIA GPUs, which are harder to come by, but of course, Amazon does still offer them. So we don't know how much Anthropic will actually rely on Amazon specific silicon. What we do know, though, guys, is that these large language models, these startups, they need compute power, which is expensive. And so they're leaning into big tech to get that. Yeah, exactly. Deirdre, uh, I mean, there has been this sense out there that it takes so much capital, so much access to, to data that the, the, big, uh, the big guys are the ones who have, uh, you know, pulling all the levers here. I do wonder what the startup world looks like. I mean, is there just a parade of well-positioned AI startups looking for uh, this type of endorsement from one of these bigger companies? What does a better mousetrap look like in this world? Yeah, absolutely. There is certainly a parade of startups. It feels like every day I'm getting several, several pitches. Every startup's either providing that large language model or maybe they're providing software for chips, or they're even providing the chips themselves. I spoke to one, Sam Bonova, last week that actually brought in one of its processors and showed, you know, this has the same compute power as an NVIDIA GPU. But what you got to ask is who are their customers, right? Who's actually using this compute power? Because so far, it feels like all the startups, as you said, Mike, are looking to big tech to get that. And there hasn't really been a startup able to provide that compute power on the very back end. Dee, thanks. Uh, we'll watch it closely. Obviously, a big week for AI. MetaConnect uh, later in the week as well. That's our dear Dubosa. Still to come today, uh, more on today's movers, including the media names rising on this tentative agreement now between the writers and the studios. Talk about what that may mean for SAG as well, which does remain on strike, of course. Futures remain weak to kick off the final week of Q3. Don't go anywhere. I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me. Emerge as you. Tremphia guselkumab is proven to significantly reduce joint pain, stiffness, and swelling in adults with active psoriatic arthritis. Some patients even reported less fatigue as assessed by survey one week prior. Results may vary. Tremphia is taken by injection six times a year after two starter doses at week zero and four. Serious allergic reactions may occur. Tremphia may increase your risk of infections and lower your ability to fight them. Before treatment, your doctor should check you for infections and tuberculosis. Tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms of infection infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to. Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremphia, including important safety information, at tremphia.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food & Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremphia, cost support may be available. Some S&P laggards this morning. You'll see some Macau-related names as there are more worries today about China property, especially some roadblocks to Evergrande's restructuring, along with Carnival, who's going to give us earnings later in the week, along with some others like Micron, uh, Paychex, uh, Nike, and Vail. Opening bell coming up in just under five minutes.
Most of the media names are up in the pre-market. The Writers Guild did reach a tentative agreement with the studios and the streamers, one that might potentially end this uh, months-long strike. Neither side would address the terms, and the writers still must ratify the deal. Actors have yet to reach their own agreement with the studios, but the negotiating committee guys for the WGA says this deal is exceptional. And we did get uh, a tweet from SAG congratulating them on their agreement for now. So we'll see how much white space, white space is between the two. Yeah, stopping short of the worst case scenario, which was just you know kind of punting this into next year, I still think it'll be really interesting once these uh, strikes are settled, what, what the studios do in terms of thinking about the volume of content that they need. Because I don't think that's going to be addressed in these mm. agreements, meaning they've gone this period without a lot of new stuff. Sure. Did they lose subs? Did they think that they can get by with less? And so can the economics for the media companies improve or is it just going to be right back to, hey, we have to just th t spend a ton on content constantly and hope we get paid off in a long time? Yeah, absolutely. AI, the last sticking point, according to the New York Times. We don't know the exact details there, but that will be fascinating as well to see how that played out. The vote is Tuesday to uh, go ahead and vote for this contract, the terms at which we'll find out soon. Let's get the opening bell here and the CNBC real-time exchange and the big board. It is CRH, manufacturer of building materials, celebrating its U.S. listing. We're going to talk to the company's CEO in the next hour. At the NASDAQ, it is CBS, celebrating the 45th season of Survivor. Wow. Forty-five. No, no, they have more than one season a year. Right. It's not That's years. Why. It's I'm like, seasons. I, that math does not work. I was just yeah, thinking yeah. that too, and I'm like, oh wait. And then There's they like at least two a year yes. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But a good reminder: Paramount trades on uh, on the next day. Yes, so. yes. Um, at the very least, the talk shows will be able to restart right. uh, as a result, if in fact this writer's deal is ratified. So we'll keep our eye uh, on that. Um, a lot of macro commentary over the weekend, Mike. Uh, David Costa Goldman says energy prices are a top talker among clients. I see Ed Yardeni, who has been net bullish, uh, tempering some of his enthusiasm lately, saying maybe 4,200 is a short-term uh, target. 4,200 is the area that now everyone has swung their attention to uh, on the S&P. It's only like 3% down from here, not even. So it's it's not that that far away. But it basically with the 200-day averages, 200-day moving average of the S&P still tilting higher, so it, theoretically it's a longer-term uptrend. But also, if you remember back when it was the ceiling of, a, of the trading range for months and months, and people didn't think it could get breakthrough. So that's one of the reasons we're looking uh, for that area, perhaps. Uh, you know, there is some talk, too, of some sort of technical fragility in the market. We broke a certain uh, triggers, and then you have the systematic funds that might be net sellers. I think we're in that mode of saying, is the market oversold enough? Are enough stocks down enough to account for what might be coming? And you do still have 452 on the 10-year. The pressure remains on uh, from that area. I think you also need... For bulls to get really excited, some idea out there of, of a reward, like the story's going to change somehow, whether that's just seasonality improves in the fourth quarter, or we could find our way uh, to earnings actually tilting higher, the nominal growth rate of the economy holding up, uh, or for that matter, you know, eventually rate cuts. I mean, I know the Fed doesn't want to talk about it, but 
uh, they don't know what's going to happen any much better than we do. As we look here in stocks are opening this morning lower, the Russell 2000 is down by more than a half a percent. And yeah. small caps have been down. I think they're more down more than 11 percent since the end of July. So that's correction territory. I mean, is, oh, that, for wor- sure. is that worrying? Um, to a degree, it is. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's very much a, um, uh, you know, t- we've talked about the very weak underpinnings of some aspects of this rally. It wasn't as much of a problem when both were kind of trudging higher, but just mega caps were doing much better okay. than, than small caps. But yeah, it's a little bit of a concern. They're below their 200-day. Equal-weighted S&P is also looking a little ragged. The question is, does that also just mean, though, that a lot of what the market has had to reckon with is already reflected, as Tony Dwyer was saying, in uh, the majority of stocks out there? I, you know, I, I do think that rates matter, as we said before, and oil matters if it's not accompanied by, hey, the economy's in acceleration mode. And then it just acts as a sort of a pure restraint, um, you know, as we, as we sort of test these, uh, these new levels out there. And that's another thing Costin was saying, which is rates going up when it's not about, you know, economic acceleration. And that's, you know, it gets in the market's head, if nothing else. Uh, yet another open where energy is the only sector mm-hmm. higher, yeah. uh, up about half a percent, but everything else is lower. A lot of interesting consumer stuff today, uh, Court, in particular this Jeffrey's note mm-hmm. where they survey those with student debt. Right. 90% uh, of those respondents say, yeah, we're kind of worried about paying the bills uh, this fall. And so they, they cut Urban, they cut Foot Locker, and yep. they, they cut Nike. Yeah, they did. And obviously we're going to hear more from Nike this week. But I think there has been some survey data suggesting those that are worried about about these bills are going to cut things like apparel and footwear probably first. And so those are companies are really pressured. I think I went through a report and it was truly a laundry list of all of the analyst notes sort of compiling the names that would be the most under pressure. It was almost anyone that sells apparel and footwear. And so I think we need to watch that carefully. And of course, Nike is going to report sort of outside of the rest of the retailers, but it's really going to be interesting to hear what they say. And to your point, Carl, I mean, Jeffries is looking at Nike and saying, look, the wholesale channel is likely to remain pressured because they're working on their inventories. Consumers obviously are pulling back in some ways if they are worried about student debt. According to their survey data, they're specifically calling out things like apparel and footwear. And also China plays such an important role for Nike. And it's been okay, but not great. Uh, Jeffries is calling out China when it comes to Nike. So is J.P. Morgan's Matthew Boss, Bank of America's Lorraine Hutchinson. I mean, they're all looking at it with a little bit of concern. T.D. Cowan's uh, John Kernan. They're all saying, look, Nike will probably report results that are in line, but most of them don't really expect sort of a blockbuster report because there's a lot of cross currents going on for that very important global company. I do find it interesting. It it sort of reflects a bit of a slow motion capitulation Mm -hmm. by the street on Nike uh, because, you know, analysts were willing to say, sure, worth 35 times earnings back near the highs because it was just considered to be that the brand Mm -hmm. had so much core enduring value and then the global story was was right there and they were advantaged because of direct to consumer and all the rest of it. Uh, And now the stock is back to where it was, you know, three, four years ago. Uh, and, you know, you wouldn't call it cheap, but it's like 23 times earnings, no longer at, uh, at 35. So, uh, you know, we'll see if, if this reflects people just kind of giving up at the point where uh, the, the stock might be trying to find some value. It, last week, consumer discretionary was so weak, but if you pull up the names and sort of look within, it was a lot of these 
you know, experience-based travel names that, that count in the consumer discretionary, Caesars, MGM, Norwegian, Airbnb, I mean, down 7-plus percent, as much as 9 percent last week. And here in the early going, you see Carnival, again, under pressure, down 2.6 percent. Also, Las Vegas Sands, uh, Tesla down there, too. Those all count as consumer discretionary. So, yeah, we're talking a lot about apparel and Nike, but when you're looking at the sector, it does encompass a lot more than that. And as Carl, you pointed out earlier, the worries about what's going on in China and Macau and property values probably all plays a part there as well, especially for those casino names. Yeah. Nike, the second worst Dow name of the year. Only Walgreens has done mm. uh, worse. Actually, the top uh, Dow, Dow industrial performer this morning is, is actually Dow. Uh, J.P. <laughs> yeah. Morgan uh, goes to overweight, Mike. Kind of a dividend yield story, and that's sort of where we are, is looking for things that can compete with 5% money markets. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, in certain pockets, that is the game. Although I will say uh, the rest of the sort of basic materials and chemicals kind of riding along uh, with the strength in Dow, uh, sealed air uh, is one of the leaders to the upside today as well. You have some steel companies too. So this notion of rates higher, does it mean, you know, it's a uh, kind of a higher nominal growth story, inflation going to be stickier, uh, that might be filtering in uh, in that direction as well. Uh, the auto strike is interesting. Um, Ford obviously got a pass on the expansion of the work stoppage last week, uh, but Ford did say last night that there's still uh, some gaps to, to go. Uh, I told the wires. Interesting, B of A does reiterate stubbornly, we, iter we reiterate our buy on GM and Ford, which continue to leverage the strength of uh, their core businesses with the ongoing recovery in the global automotive cycle. Uh, we'll see. We talked to LeBeau in the last half hour, Mike, but the degree to which uh, the involvement of the White House now physically on the yeah. picket line makes any difference. Yeah, or if, in fact, Ford is more, is closer to a deal. Uh, it's hard to know if Ford strikes a deal how much longer the other two would, you know, be that far apart. Once you have the template of some kind of parameters and terms, I think the market is at least feeling as if it's going to be absorbable by, uh, by the companies. Huge big picture questions, though, to be sure. a base point about, you know, can they... Uh, do they have the wherewithal under a new deal uh, to really make this transition and throw all the capital they have to into uh, into EVs? I feel like, you know, I can go back and look, but Ford's been in, at 11 or $12 forever, basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can sort of see how they've always looked cheap. They always, you know, look like, uh, you know, they have a new story to tell, but uh, it's been tough for them to get out of their own e way. Economically important, of course, these these companies uh, to yeah. the United States and to the world. And RBC's Amy Wu Silverman said on Friday, look, we've got the strike. There's geopolitics, the debt ceiling. The last time there was a debt ceiling in 2011, the VIX went to 45. This isn't debt ceiling, though. This is not, no, this is not debt ceiling. This is shut down. This is yeah. shut down. But and we know that the markets don't always react in the yeah. short term to things that are happening like this in D.C. Again, though, it may impact the sentiment. But if you look at the VIX right now, we're only, we're up, but just yeah. a little bit over 18. I mean, nowhere close to sort of, you know, where we've seen it in the past. Yeah, that was, in 2011, we were still in the post-global financial crisis, uh, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, markets. Europe was considered to be broke. We got a downgrade here. I think 20 on the VIX is a lot of what people are saying. Look, if we're looking for stuff to line up okay. for a better tactical low, we at least want to see it click toward 20. Um, I would say, too, what's interesting is when you talk about the strikes or the government shutdown, it's things that would deplete economic growth in the short term and then have an immediate catch up. Once, Once you have those resolved. Yeah. Um, so it, it makes an interesting cadence for, for GDP growth and what the Fed has to do. What do we consider the real run rate for the economy?
Meta is interesting. Uh, we talked about uh, Amazon's AI, AI efforts a moment ago, but Meta is going to have this presentation called Meta Connect on Wednesday and Thursday. The journal gets a peek at some of these customized chatbots that are now incorporating various personalities and then raises the, the prospect of celebrities being able to host their own chatbots that would answer questions that fans have, although if you are that celebrity, that, you better hope that chatbot is well behaved. Pretty good, I, I yeah. was just going to say, yeah, how much control do you have over yeah. this uh, chatbot? I can see that being a little bit of a concern. I know Meta, of course, wants to grab some younger users there. I, I'm not sure this will do it, but hey, what do I know? I'm not working at Meta, but I can see some some downfalls and some pitfalls here potentially. It's, it is fascinating. I mean, um, you know, the story with Meta has really operated almost aside from the AI opportunity. You know, it's been obviously about margin spending less. Uh, on Metaverse, we had a, on, uh, on Friday in Closing Bell, Ron Josie at City, who had upgraded the stock or raised his price target, just says that the, the ad load in Reels and the engagement with Reels has been so strong, and it's like this unending inventory of ads. You just think that's what's going to be driving top line. So it doesn't just have to be cost-cutting. It doesn't have to be some... Who knows, maybe AI opportunity, but uh, you know, a lot of that is, uh, has sort of kept people interested in the name, even though it's, it's down 1%, um, still not crazy valuation-wise compared to where it used to be. Uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on any headlines out of that uh, that, that presentation. You mentioned City. Uh, this FT piece about Jane Frazier mm. uh, giving a town hall to employees in which she says, get on board. Uh, we have incredibly high ambitions for the bank. Uh, and this train, it's going to move fast. So lean in, help us win with clients, help us deliver the changes, or get off the train. Mm -hmm. uh, she's been really vocal last couple of weeks about some of the efforts she's making to reinvent the bank. Yes. Um, you know, trying to, to to try and kind of recharge the culture there to some degree. Um, look, the stock trades at 40% of book value. Um, it is traded at a massive discount to book value for, you know, at least five years. I mean, maybe you got closer uh, to book value before. That tells you the market is saying there's not a lot of core value that's being realized out of the franchise as it sits right now. So streamlining upper management, uh, deciding that you have to essentially put people on notice, that you have to come up with some kind of results is, uh, is, uh, is, is you know, something that I guess makes sense from a relatively new CEO yeah. right now. Talking about less focus um, on geography and, it, you know, it, it, the piece quotes uh, senior bankers sort of saying, look, I understand that she needs to make some changes here. Clearly where we are is not where we want to be, but I can imagine some of the employees may, may want to be on board, but they don't even know if their jobs are safe. They haven't, no, of course. She hasn't really given a lot of details, right? So maybe you want to stay on the train if, if you have a seat, right? But do you know if you still have one? It's very tough when you have a company that, you know, really not ever fully 100% integrated from all the acquisitions over the years, and it's redefining what it is, right? It doesn't have the wealth management business that it used to, uh, and it's kind of shrinking itself back down to what the old Citibank used to be, which is a much smaller footprint, uh, not entirely, but that's kind of where it's headed with a corporate bank, a private bank for high net worth international clients, a lot of Forex and transaction services. So we'll see if they can uh, they can stick that landing, but that seems to me what the, uh, uh, it, what the, the project is there. Fascinating look at some of the healthcare names, uh, mm. which, as you know, have had one of the worst years uh, in, in a couple of decades. Uh, story on the tape this morning takes a crack at it and argues that it might be the fascination with uh, drugs like Wagovi and Ozempic uh, that might yeah. potentially reduce the need for especially medical devices, but also therapies in the year ahead. The years ahead. I see Pfizer now. That's another two and a half year low. Stryker, uh, Medtronic. I mean, it very little data yet, but there yeah. is this budding narrative that these stocks are going to change American health. 
There's no doubt about it. In fact, for years, when you talked about the medical device stocks, you'd hear a money manager and analyst come on. And the entire bull thesis would start with aging uh, demographics and chronic obesity. Mm. In the, I mean, that's where sure. joints run out and where you need stents and all the rest of it. So clearly, if you believe those things can be reversed to some degree, to, I mean, it's great news for everybody, except for if you're putting <laughs> a lot of you know, uh, artificial joints into, uh, into folks. So I've also wondered about the, um, the lab equipment side, which was more of an AI story. I think there's kind of an interesting mm. dynamic. People are, those are the two big things going on thematically in the market is AI and the weight loss drugs, sure. I think, in terms of upending business models. And both of them, I think, can bear on healthcare in terms of, is AI going to just change the way we do diagnostics and we test things and clinical trials and things like it's that? It's fascinating. I think so, so few people really understood the impact of sort of these weight loss drugs would be having. Because if I remember earlier on in the year, healthcare was sort of a, a name many were recommending. It seemed like yeah. this was the place to be, this was safe. But to your point, then if uh, you, can't, you can't look at it as a broad sector if, if you're not going to sell as many artificial knees if people are losing weight and don't need them as much. It's been almost as narrow healthcare has in terms of the performance as, uh, you know, as the broader market had been right. in terms of Lilly and Novo, you know, kind of stealing all the uh, all, Yeah, exactly. All the you got to be careful where you're trading there. Uh, some of the IPO names from last week. Uh, Mike Cart is putting in a post-IPO low. Yeah. Uh, interesting piece in the journal today looking at sort of how uh, Cart, Arm, and Clavio uh, opened well and then faded. And until that dynamic changes, it's going to be hard to argue that this window is anything more than a soft open. Right. Um, it, it's, it's kind of conveying the idea that it's a seller's market, and that's <laughs> not the way to get new IPO buyers in there. I think it also just does reflect where we are in terms of the broader tape. Uh, people are not looking for new risks to take on right now unless, hey, look, if it's a good idea, if it's a good franchise, they're going to buy it. Also, there's often a hangover effect after an IPO, you get a little rush of excitement, then they sort of find their level. It's just happening very quickly with these names. I mean, they've kind of uh, been a quick little uh, balloon, uh, got inflated and then deflated right away. Yeah, uh, we've tried to draw attention to the size of the float uh, relative to history. The float, the fact that these are motivated sellers who had reasons for getting these stocks out there as opposed to just, hey, this is a business hitting at the perfect moment, this is why you want to own it. So all those things, I think, have made it a little bit of a tough as a sort of test cases for the IPO market. Holding 4,300 by about 13 points. Uh, let's get to our Bob Pisani this morning. Hey, Bob. Good morning, Carl. Good morning, everybody. Uh, well, September living up to its reputation is the worst month of the year. Again, pressure and it's the higher rates. They're really the problem. Again, two-year, two ten-year on the upside. Uh, look at some of the semiconductor names. You look at some of the tech names in general. Arc, good uh, indicator of the speculative tech. Uh, Flat was down at the open, having a very rough month. Uh, even the semiconductor index, big leader earlier in the year. Also basically been selling off the last couple months, consumer discretionary, like autos under pressure from higher rates. Energy is the sole sector that's in the green this month, obviously, when you're dealing with oil towards $100, not quite there yet, in the $90 range, uh, that's going to help energy stocks. The problem with stocks is very simple. You can talk about seasonality all you want, but consistently rising rates are the real problem here. Uh, and that's more competition for stocks, and it does a lot to the earnings situation, does a lot to the economy. And we've got stocks and bonds selling off again. That's a problem. That's 2022, folks. Remember what happened back there. This is an historic change. Since the 1980s, basically, we've been dealing with lower rates as a tailwind for stocks. That's it's not true anymore. This is a big historic change that's going on. And my friends like to call this the pocket picker market, uh, where you keep trying to buy little rallies here and it doesn't work because oversold, and we are oversold in a lot of sectors, it's not enough reason to buy right now. So over the weekend, there was all sorts of jokes about what 
soft landing. There are parts of the stock market that are not so soft landing at all. Autos have had a horrible month. Uh, airlines have been down. We've got Alaska and Southwest at new lows today. Retail's been weak. Uh, the transports generally have been weak. Uh, mid-cap stocks, where a lot of things, a lot of transports are, uh, like airlines, uh, have been down. They're down 6%. Banks aren't particularly rallying. You see what I mean? And consumer discretionary with higher rates, it hurts consumer stocks, whether you're talking about staples or discretionary. You see the, the damage that's going on. And even the old leaders, the semiconductor, SMH, uh, is down basically 12%. It's hit the highs, what, two months ago. That was uh, the, the end of July when we were hitting new highs in there. It's been straight down uh, for most of this month here. If you look at some of the big semi names, even NVIDIA has had a, a, a weak patch here in the middle of the month. So we're down, what, close to 11 12% in NVIDIA? Teradyne, Marvell, ST Micro, AMD. This is all just this month. So there's a lot of damage. Uh, and I know you guys were talking about the IPOs a minute ago. ARM is not particularly helping these causes. Remember, it's broke issuance price there, 51, now 50.92. It was trading in the 60s, essentially, for the first two days. So every retail investor who bought it in the beginning, they're way underwater. They're $10 underwater at this point. Remember, it's, it's the people who buy afterwards that we're, we're looking out for right now. And those people are all underwater on that IPO. So I know Mike was talking about the RSP, the equal weight index. We're basically flat on the year. It was up maybe 1% when I looked uh, Sunday, but you see here down, it's basically flat on the year. Not This means, Carl, of course, the average stock is not doing very well for the, for, for the year. The only thing holding up is energy. And even here, these energy stocks been selling off last week, even as oil has been moving up. That's how tough the market is when you can't even push energy stocks forward in a week where oil's going up. Tough time, Carl. Back to you. Bob, thanks. Uh, Bob Pisani this morning. As we go to break, let's check bonds. Uh, we mentioned the 10-year back above four and a half. Uh, sure enough, four, five, one, seven uh, at this particular moment. We got Goolsby on the tape, Kashkari tonight, seven Fed speakers throughout the course of the week, and then a pretty good diet of data this week. Uh, PCE, some housing, UMish on Friday. We'll be right back. Join us for the Delivering Alpha Investor Summit this Thursday, September 28th in New York City, where we'll convene investors and industry leaders to provide insights, ideas, and analysis to help you balance risk with maximized returns. Scan the QR code on the screen or visit cnbcevents.com slash delivering alpha. Squawk in the street. We'll be right back. Got a Taylor Swift sighting on NFL Sunday. The superstar attended the Chiefs-Bears game in Kansas City, was shown celebrating a touchdown by all-pro <laughs> tight end Travis Kelsey and cheering. <laughs> well, there was a, a lot of lip-reading going yeah. on in the, in the booth. Her appearance uh, fueling some speculation that the two are an item. By the way, the Chiefs did win 41-10. Mahomes got asked about whether or not there was pressure to make sure Kay, uh, Travis got a touchdown. I know, absolutely right. I mean, all of the attention that this woman is getting and uh, maybe the economic boom she's bringing to various cities, not just because of her concerts, but maybe she's going to bring some new fandom to Kansas City, too. Yeah, she's like, well, oh, this is the view from this side of a this football side. arena, not when you're down on the field. We, we both perform. Yeah, exactly. Both um, performing Not on the bleachers, though, as yeah. she was. Oh, not on the bleachers, but wearing her signature red lipstick. So. Yeah. And then they got him walking out through, in the, in the, in the, through the, yeah. the stadium. Uh, oh, not a lot. Hallways. I wonder yeah, if they right? finally exchanged those friendship bracelets after all. <laughs> there you go. That's right. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 
All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.